This is episode 74 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Anna Eva Fay. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, the podcast for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 74. I know, I know, I've been gone for a long time again. Uh, This time around, it was due to falling into a kind of a deep well. Actually, this has happened to me before. I get consumed by other subjects, and in this case, believe it or not, it was Vincent Van Gogh. Now, being a painter myself, Van Gogh holds a huge place in my brain, and he's more than, I think really more than any artist, he captivates my curiosity. Whether I realize it or not, he has, listen to this, he has some similarities to Houdini. Now, no, Houdini never painted, to the best of my knowledge, nor did he ever cut his ear off. But Houdini was a consummate artist always working, always striving for more. He was at times misunderstood, as was Van Gogh. And then when he died, Bess and Dr. Saint kept his name alive and basically helped to create the living legend that continues to this day. In a similar fashion, it was Theo Van Gogh's wife, Joanna Bonger, that kept Vincent's name alive and propelled him to legendary status. Unlike Houdini, Van Gogh was mostly unknown in his day and certainly not appreciated. I guess it was similar to Houdini in his earliest days, but through the efforts of Joanna Bonger, she helped to keep his name out there and eventually began selling his art. Vincent only sold one painting during his lifetime. In the short period of time that he painted, he created thousands of pieces of art, and then he died at a young age at 37. Houdini lived to be 52, but did more in his lifetime than most people do in several. And get this. The story was told for many years and then further pushed by a 1956 film called Lust for Life starring Kirk Douglas that Vincent shot himself and that is why he died. In Houdini's case, there was a 1953 film starring Tony Curtis that pushed the idea that Houdini died doing his water torture cell. And we know that Houdini, well, the Houdini movie was wrong. But it now appears the Van Gogh story may have been wrong as well. There is a theory, and I strongly believe it based upon several things that I've researched, that Van Gogh did not shoot himself, but rather was shot by some teenagers that often bullied him. It was likely an accident, and Van Gogh wanted it clearly stated that no one was to blame for this. In other words, he seemed to be protecting the boys. One major point that is brought up is, if if Van Gogh was going to kill himself, Why would he bring his canvases, his easels, his art supplies out to the fields if he was just going to shoot himself? They never found the gun that he supposedly shot himself with. They never found his art supplies. It's all very strange and, frankly, more mysterious. So Houdini is done in by a college student that later becomes a recluse. Van Gogh is done in by a teenager whose family mysteriously moves away and never returns to this small town shortly after the death of Van Gogh. Very, very weird. 
Okay. I must admit uh, that I am very fascinated by my subject of today. If she were alive, I think uh, I think you could consider this kind of borderline stalking. <laughs> Anna Eva Fay reminds me of Jane Seymour in the movie Somewhere in Time, if you're familiar with that. In fact, the character... Uh, that Jane Seymour plays, Elise McKenna, is based upon a real-life actress from that period, Maude Adams. And again, Anna Eva Fay resembles Adams as well, probably because she's from that very same time period, that everything takes place, the late 19th century. You have to admit, her name alone has a certain ring to it, Anna Eva Fay. It really sticks with you. I think one of my earliest discoveries that caused me to be drawn to her was when I started finding her name pop up in magazines like Mahatma, The Sphinx, Conjurer's Monthly, and more. Yeah, magic magazines. And they were talking about and describing her in her various appearances across the country and beyond. Previously, I'd been under the impression that she was a fake medium, but clearly among the magicians of the time, she was one of them. This different view of her caused me to dig deeper into her life, and I even went so far as to visit her grave in Melrose, Massachusetts one year. It was an amazing experience, given the fact I didn't even know where she was buried in the cemetery, yet I walked right to the site as if I'd been there before. Now, I'm going to give you more on the grave after the feature, so now let's explore the very intriguing life of the marvelous Anna Eva Faye. Our subject today was born Anne Eliza Heathman, February 3rd, 1851. She would go by the name Annie for much of her life. She came from a very large family of four siblings. Sadly, her mother died while giving birth to a daughter in 1862. Annie and her siblings would be sent to foster families as their father was unable to support them. Annie was tossed from family to family, sometimes moving on her own. Along the way, she settled with a family who were spiritualists. This is where Annie got her first exposure into the new movement. She even demonstrated some ability to create phenomenon, which kept her in the household for a time. Eventually, she was sent on her own again. If you'd like to learn more about the early days of the spiritualist movement, please listen to episode 57 on the Fox Sisters. In fact, the hierarchy of the early spiritualists begins with the Fox sisters, followed by the Davenport brothers, and then for sheer fame, it's likely the next in line would have been Annie. There were other mediums, countless among them, but Annie created a sensation like the sisters and the brothers before her. That sensation began in a small town that no longer exists. It was New Portage, Ohio, which is near modern-day Akron. I'm unclear of the year, however. Annie had a measly 65 cents to her name. Not $65, but 65 cents. And with that, she rented an old schoolhouse for her show. She had some flyers printed and purchased candles, and yet still had 10 cents left over. She was able to support herself, and because of that, was able to move back in with her father and stepmother. 
Her notoriety was growing in the area and came to the attention of a man named Henry Cummings Fay. He was 10 years her senior and had a somewhat failed career as a medium. He went by the name of H. Melville Fay, which sounded very much like the name William Marion Fay. That Fay was the manager of the Davenport brothers and later would be part of the act of Fay and Keller, the latter being Harry Keller. But Henry Fay, or as he was known, H. Melville Fay, suffered the fate of many a fake medium by having his methods exposed and being forced to confess that he was not genuine. Even though exposure seemed to spell the end for Henry, fortune would smile upon him when he would meet Annie Heathman. According to the book The Indescribable Phenomenon by Barry Wiley, it is unknown how Henry Fay and Annie Heathman met. The year was likely 1871. According to many articles, the two married. Barry Wiley points out that though no marriage certificate could be found, it's still likely they were married as those types of records were not always kept and less likely to survive after all this time. But the Fays were more than husband and wife. They were business partners, and this is really the crux of their relationship. Annie had previous experience as a medium, and she likely kept up with the latest happenings in the world via the Banner of Light magazine. But Mr. Fay would now introduce her to something new. The Davenport brothers created the first spirit cabinet. Their claim to fame was being tied up inside of a wooden cabinet. When the doors were closed, strange phenomenon would occur. Bells would ring. Knocking sounds were heard. Guitars were strummed and the like. But when the cabinet was open, the brothers were still tied. The brothers were tied with rope. A young lady would come along on the scene in 1867, a few years before Annie and Faye. Her name was Laura Ellis. Her father, Marshall Ellis, had developed an innovative method for the cabinet seance, and that was to use cotton bandages, thread, and wax. He chose his young 11-year-old daughter to be the medium who would be tied up with these cotton bandages. Young Laura proved to be the ideal subject. She would have one tied around each wrist, then the knots sealed with candle wax, and then the strips passed through a ring on a board and then sewed to her dress. It was a long way to go to prove that she couldn't move, but it worked very well. And yet somehow, despite the impossible conditions, Laura Ellis could cause the ghostly manifestations to occur. Or was it the spirit's? The technique would be known for a time as the cotton bandage tie or the cotton bandage test. But in time, Laura Ellis was forgotten. And Annie Eva Fay really took over the crown of the cotton bandage tie with spirit cabinet. In teaching the cotton bandage tie to Annie, it made one thing clear. She was going to be the star, the focus of the act. Henry would be relegated to the shadows while his partner would take center stage and excel in this capacity. The spirit cabinet with cotton bandage tie was a feature of the light seance or fully lighted seance. Annie would be concealed either by a curtain or a curtained cabinet, but otherwise it was done in full light. The strange and eerie phenomenon popular among spirit cabinet routines took on a new life in Annie's hands, or maybe not in her hands, as the case may be. Next came the dark seance. This is the type of thing often portrayed in old movies where several people sit in a circle holding hands and then the medium would become possessed by the spirit of some departed person. In this version, however, though hands were held, strange 
phenomenon would occur. People would be touched by spirits. They would feel things. They would hear strange noises and the like. The dark seance is thus called because it happens in complete darkness. Here's a full description of both the light and dark seances. Annie Thay will be tied to iron staples in the wall, neck, hands, and feet with cotton cloth, sewed with thread, pasted with court plaster, and while this in this condition, bells, guitars, violins, and harmonicas played upon an invisible power. Glasses of water were drank, paper cut with scissors. The iron ring, coat, and chair phenomenon lasted two hours. The dark seance. In this circle, each member of the seance usually receives some special manifestations from the spirit friends, materializing hands and touching of their friends, musical instruments played, all while Annie Fay is under powerful test conditions. Dark seance limited to 10 to 15 people, $1 per ticket. Light seance in public hall, 35 cents. Light seance in parlor, 50 cents. This is from a, uh, a letter from Henry Fay to the editor of Medium and Daybreak, a British spiritualist newspaper in England, reprinted in Barry Wiley's book, The Indescribable Phenomenon. To further add perspective to this, $1 in 1874 is about $25 today. So if Annie had 15 people times $25, that's $375 per seance in today's money, which is a lot of money back then. Annie and Henry traveled across the U.S. presenting their seance program until an unfortunate event happened while in Boston. A fellow medium who attended one of Annie's seances caught a glimpse of her secret work. The woman spoke to Annie about it, and as far as Annie was concerned, the issue was resolved, but that was hardly the case. The medium, with newfound knowledge, went about doing a knockoff version of Annie's program and then went to the Boston Herald newspaper to divulge all the information to the world, how Mrs. Frey created her incredible spiritualistic mysteries. This brought a quick end to Annie and Henry's run in Boston. Next up for the couple would be their first trip overseas. They went to Scotland in 1874 and were a huge hit in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Next stop, London. And again, the seances were very popular, especially among the fellow spiritualists and mediums. They were taken by the cotton bandage test, which was something new in that part of the world. Here's a piece from the Standard Newspaper of London, July 6th, 1874. This young lady, who has a most attractive appearance, comes before an English audience with high credentials as to her skill from all parts of the United States, and it is but little do say in her praise that she fairly deserves them. There is nothing supernatural about her in any more than there is about any other medium. She simply goes through what may be called her marvelous performance with a quickness and precision that may be called extraordinary. It is the best exhibition of the kind that has yet been seen, and Miss Fay is as much in advance of Masculine and Cook as they were ahead of the Davenport brothers. There were many present who looked upon the performance as a manifest proof of spiritualism. How is it done? We cannot pretend to say. And look at it as one of the best specimens of seances of this kind which we have ever seen. Not much more than a century ago, Miss Fay would have been burnt as a witch. Now she will only puzzle and amuse the many that are sure to go see her. Now, as Annie Fay was growing in notoriety... 
she came to the attention of John Neville Maskelin. Mr. Maskelin attended some of the seances during the start of the run, then he went about duplicating, to the best of his abilities, the things he witnessed by presenting them at Egyptian Hall. A program from 1874 reads, Maskelin and Cook, the Royal Illusionists and Anti-Spiritualists, an original and unique entertainment, conjuring extraordinary, spirit-wrapping, the trance medium, floating in midair, the new light and dark seances. The program makes no mention of Mrs. Fay, but it was meant to be an exposure of sorts of her show. Oddly, Maskelin used lots of conjuring methods to accomplish his exposure, which were quite different from what Mrs. Fay was using. The public wouldn't have known the difference. Interestingly, Annie Fay pointed out that both she and Maskelin were under the same management so it was rather unethical, in her opinion, for him to try and duplicate her act. And it hurt her business during this initial run in London. William Crookes was a spiritualist and a scientific investigator, but not like, say, Houdini or even James Randi, no. His whole concept of investigation was not to prove that these things did not exist, but rather to produce proof they do or did exist. Crooks was a chemist by profession. His claim to fame was discovering the element thallium. He attempted to use science in his investigations. He would receive a lot of criticism on the occasions that he supported the finds of various mediums. He no doubt discovered fraud along the way as well. Among some of the more notable mediums he investigated were Daniel Douglas Holm, Kate Fox, and Florence Cook. In an article in the New Scientific Periodical by Eric Deason, December 1974, he states, Crookes's studies of the occult are related to his scientific work on radiometry, in that both involve the detection of previously undiscovered forces. So, it isn't such a stretch for him to believe in unknown things, especially after having discovered thallium and having been part of the team that discovered helium, both previously unknown. One big flaw was that Crooks suffered from poor eyesight, which led to some of his mistaken claims in regards to spirit phenomenon. On February 19, 1875, Crooks would have a new subject to investigate, Anna Eva Fay. She would be doing this test solo without her husband, who many felt had a questionable character. But the charisma of Mrs. Fay led just as many to believe she could be genuine. The usual course of events would have Mrs. Fay tied up before beginning her demonstrations. As has been stated, she was now using the cotton bandages instead of rope made popular by the Davenport brothers. But on this night and nights after, she would instead be facing a new sort of tie, this time with electricity. William Crookes brought out a galvanometer. This was not a pseudo-scientific device created specifically to detect fake mediums. A galvanometer was a real device used to check the continuity of telegraphic cables. According to Crookes, the method has the advantage of absolute certainty, since if the medium has her hands or body removed from the wires in a state of trance or otherwise, the galvanometer outside lets the spectators know the moment the circuit is broken. On the other hand, if the wires should be joined together so that the current can still pass, the effect is quite as surely made evident by the galvanometer. 
let's get to the first night of investigation. Now, if I gave you the impression that Crooks would instantly be duped, think again, as he was not the only one present. Several other investigators were part of the team, and they took many precautions. For example, they sealed the windows to be sure no one outside could come inside to help Mrs. Fay. Other doors that led into the library were sealed. The entire library was searched. When all of these things were done, then the attention turned to the electrical device. Many pre-tests were done to make sure the galvanometer was working perfectly. Finally, it was time for Annie to enter. For clarification, one of the committee members nailed the brass handles that Annie was to hold some distance apart. This kept one hand out of reach of the other. She was asked to grip the handle so the galvanometer could be checked. Then she was asked to let go and regrip. All of this again to test the device to assure it was working properly. Next, the lights were brought down. At least they allowed that concession. And here was the setup. The library was a large room. There was a locked desk on one side of the room, a table on the other that had a violin on it. Near the door was a chair that Faye would be placed in. The door itself had a curtain partially covering the entryway. On the other side of this doorway was the room for the spectators. Within a minute of Mrs. Faye being left in the room, the first manifestation took place. A bell rung. Then a minute later, a hand came through the curtain doorway. Then one of the spectators was called out by name, and a newspaper called The Spiritualist was handed to him through the doorway. One by one, the various spectators' names were called, and this odd spirit hand would give them something either associated with them or their actual possession. At the ten-minute mark, the galvanometer light went off, thus Mrs. Fay had finally let go of the brass handles. The committee rushed into the room. Annie was in the chair, passed out, the brass handles on the floor beneath her. It was a half hour before she came out of that state. To the committee's utter shock, much more had gone on in that room than just the few manifestations that they would experience through the curtain doorway. Items had been shifted around. Items from other rooms in the house were discovered on the desk, where previously there wasn't anything. They were duly befuddled. It was a history-making event. There were several galvanometer seances with Annie Fay, but after the last one, that was it for William Crooks. He had hoped to prove the existence of a spirit world, and though he did believe he had discovered some unusual phenomenon, it wasn't proof enough for him. Following this, he returned to his scientific work outside of the spirit realm. And Annie Fay, well, she had a feather in her cap, having fooled a very prominent British scientist. Annie and Henry returned to America in 1875, and in 1876, the early part thereof, the Fays were in need of another employee. They hired a young man named Washington Irving Bishop. This young man came from a family devoted to spiritualism. He started out as an assistant, and before long, he became the manager of the Fays. During his short time working with them, he learned quite a bit about Annie Eva Fay's techniques. In April of 1876, he went to the phase demanding an increase in pay, which they were not willing to give. He threatened to expose her, and in fact, this is exactly what he did. 
he went to the New York Daily Graphic newspaper, and they agreed to do the expose of Mrs. Fay. The article was titled, The Greatest Humbug Yet. Its subheading was, How Professor Crook's Gifted and Wonderful Medium, Annie Eva Fay, Performs Her Tricks. This exposure, followed by a lawsuit, put an end to the profitable run of Annie Eva Fay in New York. Now, to learn more about Washington Irving Bishop, please check out podcast episode 15. The one other thing of note that happened to Annie and Henry during this time was the birth of their son, John, on May 27, 1877. Fast forward to the late 1880s, and we find Anna on another European tour. On the tour was Annie Eva Fay, now going as Anna Eva Fay, her husband Henry, and David Pingree. They performed in Germany, Vienna, Copenhagen, England, and more. They came home for a brief time, only to return in the fall of 1888, this time venturing into St. Petersburg, Russia. In the spring of 1889, Henry had to leave the tour due to ill health, He died on May 29, 1889, of cancer of the tongue. Sometime after Henry's death, David Pingree and Anna Eva Fay married. Her young son John would be adopted by David Pingree. The Pingrees purchased some property in Melrose, Massachusetts, and this is where she took up residence, at Heathman Manor. In the 1890s, the writing was on the wall. Anna Eva Fay needed something new. Her act had grown almost commonplace, but thankfully, there was a hot new thing. It was the invention of Samory Baldwin. He called it sonominism, but you might think of it as modern-day mind-reading. If you'd like to learn more about Samory Baldwin, by the way, please check out podcast episode 30. It appears that Anna Eva Fay was the first person to copy Baldwin's act. She did this by attending numerous Baldwin shows. She came up with her own version of the technique he used. She called it somnolency. This is the famous Q&A act presented by countless mentalists today. But Anna Eva Fay was the first to duplicate it. Samory Baldwin being the original creator. Another interesting effect in the Faye show was when she borrowed a man's handkerchief from someone in the audience. She tied a small knot in the cloth and dropped it to the floor. In mere moments, the handkerchief would move around, even dance around the stage. The effect, the effect came out of the spiritualism world. Anna Eva Faye was likely the first to bring it to the stage, and good thing she did because at one performance, a young Harry Bouton would see her make the handkerchief dance and would be inspired to include it in his show, where it would become a trademark for father and son. Speaking of son, this time John Fay, he was growing up, and in 1898, he married a young woman named Eva Norman, and some sources refer to her as Anna Norman. Prior to this marriage, John Fay was working behind the scenes with his mother, He had learned all the ins and outs of the seance game, as well as the ins and outs of the new mentalism game. He was being groomed by his mother to one day take over the show. However, now, all of this knowledge got transferred to Eva Norman, and they soon put together their own show, calling themselves The Fays. As you might imagine, this enraged Anna Eva Fay. To her mind, 
they had not only stole her act, but now they stole her name. This caused a major rift in the family. The worst happened in May of 1906 when Anna Eva Fay and the Fays were both booked in New York City. Anna Eva Fay was booked to perform at Keith's, and the younger Fays were at Hammerstein's Victoria Theater. Their fights were fodder for newspapers and magazines, but despite being the true betrayer, Anna Eva Fay never turned on her son. She did hate Eva Norman without question. And though the acts were very similar, there were drastic differences. Anna Eva Fay was a very charismatic woman and could command the stage simply from a chair. But Eva Norman, now Eva Fay, took a very different approach. She and her husband added a lot of theatrical elements to the show, giving it an in, kind of an Egyptian decor, and she became the high priestess of mysticism. On December 21st, 1908, John Fay accidentally shot himself. The initial news was that it was a death by suicide, but by all accounts, there were no previous signs that he was suicidal. Rather, he was known to be clumsy with firearms, and here, his clumsiness cost him his life. A short time after the death of her husband, John Fay, Eva went out on her own as Eva Fay presenting Thamaturgy, this being her take on the somnolency act that Anna had coined. Anna Eva Fay continued on with her somnolency act, performing as the one and only Anna Eva Fay. She continued going strong up until 1924 when a freak accident ended her career. She fell down some stairs. The result led to her breaking an ankle. At 73 years old, it was time to hang it up. Though as many would say, she never looked her age. Her hair was white as snow, but her skin had not so much as a single wrinkle. In July of 1924, Houdini stepped into her life. Actually, he stepped into her doorstep. The two had continued a correspondence since possibly as early as 1912. They had gone from being associates to being friends. And I'd go so far as to say he considered her a close friend. Houdini's initial visit was five hours long. He had a photographer on hand, and I swear I read somewhere that he had filmed the entire visit. Sadly, such film is lost. And to my knowledge, there's only one image of the two of them together— Odd for having a photographer there for five hours. Again, that makes me think he was actually filming rather than shooting photographs. The one image of the two of them together has them in front of Heathman Manor by the birdbath with the gazing ball. Houdini on one side, Anna Eva Fay on the other side. She was standing on one foot in the image because she was still using crutches due to her ankle injury. If you'd like to hear more about the relationship between Houdini and Anna Eva Fay, check out podcast episode 22. There's one more thing that I want to mention about Anna Eva Fay, and that was in her spirit cabinet that she used later in life. On pages 294 and 298 of Barry Wiley's book, The Indescribable Phenomenon, there are drawings of her cabinet. And the reason I bring it up is the cabinet looks oddly like the Margie box that Houdini introduced when testing Marjorie the Medium in Boston. I wonder if this box was the initial inspiration 
for the Margie box. Sadly, neither the Margie box nor Anna Eva Faye's spirit cabinet still exist, as far as we know. Anna Eva Faye died, a wealthy woman, on May 12, 1927. She was buried nearby in the Wyoming Cemetery in Melrose, Massachusetts. One additional note of interest, when Anna Eva Faye died, news of her death was in all the newspapers, and the former Miss Eva Norman, now Eva Faye, was on the West Coast performing. Imagine her surprise to discover that all of her bank accounts had been closed. The banks thought she was Anna Eva Fay and had passed on. A nice bit of irony to conclude a long-standing feud. Now, I promised you more on the grave. Uh, it is located in the Wyoming Cemetery in Melrose, Massachusetts. The grave is a small mausoleum with the name Anna Eva Fay Pingree engraved above the doorway. There are two metal doors with windows in the front, and you can actually peer through the windows, and if you do, you will see Anna Eva Faye. Actually, what you'll see is a bust of Anna Eva Faye near the back wall. And what's special about this is the family members today will come by at various times throughout the year and dress up the bust with hats and scarves. Just imagine the surprise of onlookers when they discover this. Anna is buried there, as well as her son John, who had died by accidental gunshot wound, and her husband, David Pingree, is also buried there. And that, my friends, is the life of Anna Eva Fay, famed medium and vaudeville clairvoyant. I do hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and if so, please like the podcast in whatever way your podcast provider allows. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and be safe.